Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I am here today with Vicki Brett and Amanda Sologi. Vicki Brett was born and raised in Southern California, and through the Inclusive Education Project, she focuses on advocating and educating families about their legal rights. Vicki's committed to strengthening her clients who come to her disheartened and beaten down by the current education system. She is bilingual and represents and empowers many monolingual Spanish-speaking families. She's a dedicated pro bono attorney for the Superior Court of Los Angeles' Juvenile Independency Panel, and in the past was a supervising attorney for the UCI Law School's Special Education Law Project. Welcome, Vicki. Hi. Thanks for having me. Amanda Sologi received a bachelor's degree in child and adolescent development, specializing in education from California State University, Northridge, and a Juris Doctorate from Whittier Law School, where she served as a fellow in the prestigious Center for Children's Rights Fellowship Program and served in the school's pro bono special education legal clinic. Amanda immersed herself in the world of civil rights and educational advocacy through her work in education, empowerment, and advocacy with the Inclusive Education Project supporting inclusion in early education through her appointment to the Orange County Child Care and Development Planning Council and their Inclusion Collaborative Committee. She also worked as a supervising attorney for UCI Law School's Education Rights Pro Bono Project, and she has coached the AYSO VIP, Very Important Player Program, coaching players living with disabilities and creating an inclusive soccer program. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you two and hear more about your work on the Inclusive Education Project, kind of how that project started and what needs you really saw that you wanted to fill or support. So I'll let you start there if you can share the journey of the project with us. Yeah, so Vicki and I met in law school and it kind of started this path of ours of, you know, a dream of one day owning our own law firm together to realizing that dream much sooner than we anticipated, only a couple of years out of law school. And, you know, as young attorneys, you know, we really worked hard advocating for our clients, but we saw so much of a trend of, you know, we'd help the family, we'd resolve <laughs> what issues was going on, but then the next year something new came up or each individual case only made such a small dent of an impact. And it really didn't help the systemic problems that we saw in the education system from difficulties with inclusion to just the perspectives and the stereotypes and the stigmas and all of the difficulties that we saw our clients were facing. We just saw that there was such a greater need for advocacy in this world above and beyond just individual cases. And with the IDEA, the Individual Disabilities Education Act, It is individualized. So there's no real easy way to go about like class action lawsuits or systemic change. So we thought, you know, this is one of those things where grassroots efforts comes from families, families marching to Sacramento and Washington. And the problem with that is most families don't know what their rights are. They don't know what they can ask for, what they can advocate for and what the problems even are. 
And so we found that shifting to a nonprofit to work on educating not only families, but the community on how we can better educate our students, how we can better create an inclusive education program in society kind of really grew from there. And so within a nonprofit, we're able to fundraise and fund advocacy for low-income families. So that's one aspect of it. With the nonprofit as well, we have kind of another wing where we have our podcast. So that is kind of putting out the information of trying to empower people, give them knowledge about their rights on top of like the presentations and and things that we did. Obviously, the pandemic stopped a lot of those. We, We still do virtual ones, but we were really out in the community um, doing these in-person presentations and and fielding those questions that people had that was kind of reminiscent of law school, right? It's just those hypotheticals. It's just like, you know, what if they do that? You know, and we're just like, okay, well, call us. But um, I think with the the nonprofit, it's just helped kind of elevate our place in the community to try and provide free legal services to those families that need it. How did your interest in inclusive education begin? So early on, I worked with kids all my life and ran a summer camp, worked at a summer camp that had some kids with disabilities. And I thought I was going to become a teacher, thought I was going to go into special education. And I had the benefit of working while I was in college at an elementary school that was one of those one in a million charters that was full inclusion. And it was a program that worked just beautifully. And I really fell in love with just the program and and the students. I worked as a one-on-one aide for a little boy with Down syndrome who just stole my heart from day one. And I got the benefit of seeing it from the side of these kids were starting in kindergarten, fully included in a way that made them all the same, but different. And it was just beautiful to see how well the typical peers and the kids on IEPs, they just blended together so well. And I saw it working. And so when I realized that going into teaching maybe wasn't the right move, but but going to law and, and fighting this fight was kind of the path that I kind of was thrown into, I've seen it work. And when I go to IEP meetings and when I talk to families and I hear the things that I'm being told of, we can't do this, we can't do that. And I'm thinking back to the one school that I worked at and the things that we did. And I go, it can be done. It really can, you know, and we really immerse ourselves with these students that they are such amazing kiddos out there that we just need to give them the chance because we know it can work. Yeah. I think there's a lot of research out there. I have a cousin on the spectrum. So that was kind of my dipping my toe into the world of special education and kind of seeing how he was included in his classes and and what that looked like. And then obviously just from experience growing up, having kiddos with different learning needs and how different age, you know, ranges from like elementary to middle school to high school to university to law school, how those kiddos are treated. So for instance, in law school, I was a note taker. So I didn't know who I was taking notes for, but if an adult student had that as an accommodation because of their unique learning challenge, they got a copy of my notes. So being able to kind of see what that looked like and experiencing it, it was just kind of second nature to want to advocate for inclusivity for our kiddos. Yeah, I think my story is kind of similar to Amanda's in that hearing no from so many different people within the school district and all the things they can't do. Mm -hmm. And just 
feeling like there should be a way and there should be ways that we can do this. And, you know, whether it's policies or procedures or the way it's always been done or individual personalities, like there's always a reason why we're not doing it. And so how do we create those ways and those aspects where it can be done? Yeah. Yeah. And I think just having the perspective shift to start the conversation of that's a great idea. Let's think about how this could be possible rather than starting the conversation. We don't do that or we can't do that or that wouldn't work. Right. Cause I think that's where families get really frustrated because that's the first answer that they hear a lot of times. And that's where the breakdown of communication occurs. And if we could just have more open conversations about well, you know what? We've never done that before. What would that look like? Let's talk about it. I mean, even just the idea of talking about it, if you get to the conclusion and you try something and it doesn't work, you've at least tried it. And the family is not leaving thinking, well, we haven't even tried it. Why are we not even trying it? You know, we think educators are the people who should be thinking outside the box and, and you know, be creative. You know, we see so many amazing teachers being creative. We saw that during the pandemic, right? Not every school was a disaster. There were some teachers that were going above and beyond being creative on how they could serve these students. And we know that it's out there. So, you know, let's be creative. Yeah, there were so many people that did thrive during the pandemic and through different learning styles and educational methods. So that's really fun to see more of them cropping up and more schools finding more ways to be more accommodating for differences among students as those differences became more clear through distance learning and through some of the things that didn't work. What do you see in your work as the biggest or maybe just the most common challenge that comes to you from families or from educators? I think the parent having one idea of what should be provided or how their child learns, especially after the pandemic, and then the school district coming to the table and either saying the opposite, kind of like what you were saying earlier, Tanya, like, oh, no, well, no, we can't do that, right? Um so that kind of miscommunication, I think, is the biggest issue because it's, you know, the parents seeing their child not making any progress and them just being told no, no, no by the school district. Yeah, we say all the time, you know, Vicky is a Spanish speaker and she a lot of times has to serve as this interpreter, this translator for our monolingual Spanish speaking families. But in a way, we often serve as this translator, even for English speakers, because not only are there so many acronyms in the SPED world, but there's so much language that you hear certain terminology like program or appropriate. And the Webster's definition of these words is not necessarily what is being put out there by the school team or by the family. And we're not taking the time to sit and be like, wait, did I understand what you asked the same way that you understood it? And that's really where the stem of most frustrations come from is just not being on the same page. Yeah, I think that's a big problem, not only when we're talking with our school districts and our teachers, but just talking to each other as humans. Right? Mm-hmm. How many yeah. times mm-hmm. We have misunderstandings around, you know, words or meanings or, or acronyms, right? Mm-hmm. Acronyms yeah. are huge in our world these days. I did think it was funny as you were talking about all the acronyms in the SPED world that you used an acronym to describe all of them. <laughs> yes. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I hope you caught that. <laughs> so how, how do you open that conversation? How do you talk with educators and administrators and friends and families about student disability, 
about different learning styles and differences and their expectations that the families or the educators, the administrators have in those situations. So I think one of the things we tell our clients and even anyone that we're talking to is that clarity is key and to ask a lot of questions. So we tell our families, when you're sitting in an IEP meeting, if you can't visualize and understand how you would do what they're proposing, it's not clear enough. If you're reading the goal and it's not clear, like the who, what, where, why, when of it, it's not clear enough. And in asking those questions, oftentimes that's how we get the clarity. And it's hard, I understand, for some families when they're sitting in that room across from you know 15 people to know what questions to ask. And it's okay to take it with you and ask those questions later. But I think that's the important thing is to try to be as clear. So as educators, when you're describing a goal or a program, rather than just reading what's on the paper in front of you, trying to help the parent visualize will not only probably alleviate some of their questions, but it's probably going to make it more understandable for the rest of the team too. Because if you're a speech pathologist and you're making a recommendation for a goal, the rest of that team is not speech pathologist. And they may need understanding because if we're collaborating on a goal between a gen ed classroom and a special ed classroom and, you know, within a speech therapy session, we need to make sure that everyone is understanding. So whether it's the way that we talk, the way that we explain, the way that we write things in an IEP, you know, using our WH questions as much as possible to be clear. I think that's the best way to start out. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of really great things, providing clarity and creating a visualization, like actually walking through the team. What does this look like in action in the classroom for the student and the teacher and the family? which is a piece that I think we so often forget, especially as anyone who has looked at, you know, a 30 page IEP report <laughs> and gone, how are we possibly going to do all this, right? Working through that visualization of what does this mean and what does this actually look like in the classroom could be yeah. such a valuable exercise. Absolutely. And, and I would even say that in times when I've asked questions or a parent has asked questions in IEP meetings, sometimes then the rest of the team goes, oh, wait, you know what? Maybe we need to change this or maybe that. Because it's easy for a team before an IEP meeting to put together proposed goals and think, okay, well, I've done this for this as a student in the past and like this could work. But then the logistics of things, right, come to mind. And the last thing you want is when you go first day to start implementing a goal to realize there's a problem. and then. Are we going to work on this goal differently than what was expected? Are we going to get to the annual IEP and say, well, this goal wasn't met as written, right? So I, I think it's going to even help the professional to get to that point of making that progress that we're hoping for. Absolutely. So as a parent who's sat in IEP meetings with my own children and had situations arise, I've seen professionals arguing loudly with each other. I've had professionals arguing with me. I've been brought to a point where I've actually been in tears and crying in IEP meetings. And I'm sure that you've seen that with your clients as mm -hmm. well. But as you're providing this clarity, as you're working towards more clear communication, how do you handle those difficult situations? I think a lot of times we need a break. 
I have had many IEP meetings like that. And sometimes it's better for everyone to take a breath, whether it's a break in the meeting and go back to the meeting, whether it's we need to reconvene. It's going to be emotional and supercharged because we're talking about a child. You know, we hope walking into those meetings, everyone does want what's best for that child. But the family has gone through generally so much more than the school even understands with this child. I mean, every family goes through a lot with every child, but certainly when you're dealing with a disability and medical needs and everything, there's so much more to that child and their story and their circumstance than what is just in the IEP and in the assessments. And so a lot of times, if I can try to prevent this when I get involved, you know, I love getting families who are, kids are three and they're just getting into the system and we can start them off. You know, I've had families that put together a letter or even I had one family put together a video kind of sharing the story of their child and giving it to the IEP team every year. It humanizes things a little bit, but of course we sometimes get to the point where we have gotten to the breaking point. And so I think that break and even I think describing and writing how the family is feeling can be helpful to share with the team because to be on the spot in those meetings and feel emotional and feel like you're not being heard and feel like the world is against you in that moment, it's not easy to articulate how you're feeling. Our society hates people who cry. Like we, you know, people get super awkward. Like I've had the full range of administrators, somebody reaching out, you know, with some tissue or thanking the parents or sharing all the way to like, okay, so we're going to move on. And it's just like, what? Like, Let's try to humanize it. I think that that's Amanda's and our perspective is let's get it back to the roots. We're here for this child. Because at the end of the day, the district is people are not waking up to, to make your life miserable. It feels like that to some parents for sure. And if we can get it back to, hey, we're here to help this child out. Sometimes that just very subtle shift helps tremendously. Yeah, I think that's good to remember. How can we be compassionate with each other? Because I do hear so much of that us against them and, Mm -hmm. you know, in IEP meetings and, and parents do, I think, often feel that it is the school district who woke up that morning and is just out to get you. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is super emotionally charged, but taking that step back and reframing it with the eyes of a tiny human. Mm-hmm. In how do we create the best environment for this human yeah. to learn and to thrive? Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. absolutely. And I think part of it too, is we often get into these battles of, I want this, we want that. We don't mm-hmm. want this, we don't mm-hmm. want that. Mm-hmm. Without explaining the why behind. I've been in IEP meetings before where the family's saying, no, but we want this, but we want this. And the team sometimes is trying to understand why. Or vice versa, right? The the school district is saying, we can't do this. And the family is like, but why? Well, why? And whether it's someone is hesitant to explain the why because they don't want to give too much or you know, the school district is trying to prevent liability or the family is trying to withhold something so that they have a better case, whatever the case may be. Or maybe the family doesn't even understand why they want it, right? If we try to discuss the why behind the things that we're asking for or the things that we're rejecting, Not only does it help the other side understand it better, but in explaining the why, maybe we figure out a third option 
it allows us to think outside the box more and be like, oh, well, if that's why you don't want this, well, here's a solution to that. But we can't get to that solution unless we kind of talk through that why. So I think parents try to do this. They don't always know that they should, but it's, I think, up to educators to ask why a little bit more. Because I'm, I'm often not getting those questions from team members. It's, okay, we hear you want this, but we don't think it's appropriate. Rather than saying, okay, we understand you want this. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it would be helpful or why you're concerned? It goes a long way. Absolutely. And fosters that effective communication, right? Yeah. Understanding and humanizing because now you've brought the emotion down. You're explaining what you're looking for and what you need. You're sharing effectively why it matters to you or to your child or to the classroom or to the learning environment and just opens up that creativity. I think those are the two themes I've heard through this conversation is that communication and creativity. How can we talk to each other better and how can we work together to find solutions? Absolutely. One of the things I love to ask all of my guests is to share a story that they remember from their elementary school years. So I'd love to hear something that you remember from your time in elementary school. Oh, I have one. I, I just was visiting with a friend um, who now lives in Michigan, and I've known her since kindergarten. So I have a ton of stuff. But one of the things that we were reminiscing about was our second grade teacher, Mrs. Korfman. She would, to help us with, you know, reading and, and stuff like that, she would say, T-I-O-N, shun, 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 and like, just randomly throughout the day. So she would just kind of start that. And then everybody would sing back shun, 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 shun. And she was a big dinosaur fan. She loved Stegosaurus. So she would have this stuffed Stegosaurus and just in the middle of like a class lesson, she would just like, and what about that Stega baby? And I mean, just like her playfulness. Like I just remember second grade being so much fun. And I think, you know, we had movement breaks. That was the T-I-O-N, right? The shun, shun, shun little dance. We'd get up and we don't, you know, and just like looking back and just seeing how brilliant she was is like crazy. But just in second grade, having so much fun <laughs> learning. Thank you, Vicki. What a great memory. So one thing that comes to my mind is I was always the kid in school that had the report cards that said doing wonderful, but she's a little chatty. <laughs> and I remember my third grade teacher, we were putting on like just this like class performance. And I don't remember if it was like to our families or if it was just in our class, but it was based on a book we had read. And I don't, I don't remember if the name of the book, what it was, but there was a character that happened to be named Amanda Mouse. And it was about a mouse that was very chatty. And when we were putting on this performance, she selected me to play this part almost as a way to give me an outlet to be chatty and rather than be like other teachers and say, well, she's a little chatty. That's a bad thing. She almost like gave me the encouragement that it's okay to be chatty. It's like okay to express who you are. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but you know, I probably embraced it. I mean, I know it's something that my family always jokes about, about, you know, me being chatty, but I look back at it and I think even then I wasn't a kid on an IEP or anything like that, but she saw in me that that was something that it would be easy for teachers to see as a something I was doing wrong. 
right? Or something that I should work on. But she didn't see that. She saw it as this is a, a, a good skill that you have. We just need to have the right form to use it, right? And let's em- embrace it. And I think the teachers that can do that for all of their students and see the things that maybe one teacher or one parent would see as um, a weakness or something that needs to be changed to see it as this could be something that you could use. And I mean, look at me now, I'm an attorney and I have a podcast. So I guess the chatting is, I'm putting the good use, right? So I, I love when teachers can do that with students and really embrace who the, the students are rather than just labeling them by their strengths and weaknesses. Thanks, Amanda. Yeah. For our rebel educators out there, I love these elementary stories when we get to hear things about how playful our teachers are and how we can turn weaknesses into strengths and what that means for empowering our students. Those things are so important to remember because every interaction matters with every student. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to work with the Inclusive Education Project? Yeah, we're really um, active on our social media. So we have just the Inclusive Education Project on Instagram, and you can direct message us there. You can also connect with us directly via email. You can just send an email to info at iepcalifornia.org. And then on our Facebook, we have a Facebook group for the Inclusive Education Project podcast. And it's really a great community that we have people join, not just to talk about the podcast, but just about the issues that they um, are dealing with. So that's a good way to connect with us as well. Thank you so much, Amanda and Vicki. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action and if you've enjoyed this episode we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too keep resisting tradition rebel educators